So you guys are in this sermon series, Jesus is dot, 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 right? And you're going through a bunch of things, and Jesus was something was the first message. Remember, Jesus was Lord. It was what Gino preached last week. And so you're looking at the different facets of Jesus, right? And Jesus is a complicated, multidimensional guy. Um, and, and this morning, I want to talk really just about kind of two things. The message is titled, Jesus is God in Man, okay? Because there's, there's something about the idea of, of, you know, the fancy word is, is the incarnation. The idea that, that somehow God took up residence in, in, in a human being, in Jesus. There's something about that that's just gripped my heart. It, it, it's profound. It, 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 and, and I want to kind of share with you a little bit of my journey there. Because, you know, I really think that, that if we can see this thing clearly, it, it really does, it's one of these course changers where you're like, wow, like, why didn't everyone tell me that? That means everything. <laughs> and so, and so I, I want to I kind of um, share my journey with that this morning. And basically, uh, I'm going to flesh it out a lot, but I want to tell you right now what I'm going to tell you over the next 45 minutes to an hour. <laughs> and that is this. Um, there's nothing that you need to add to Jesus to figure out who God is. And there's nothing that you need to subtract from Jesus to figure out who you are. When Jesus says, I am the truth, he means that everything you need to know, everything, is him. Paul, Paul said, I've determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Nothing. I mean, Paul, we're talking, like, Paul. Historians say Paul was probably the most brilliant man who ever lived. And if not, he was second only to, like, Plato or something like that. So the most brilliant guy in the world says, I'm determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Nothing. And, and, and the idea of, of, of the incarnation, that in Jesus, God and man have become one, have become united, and indeed are, are eternally united. It's not like he became a human being, and then when he died, he became not a human being again. He's still human up there. He's still sitting up there on, on his throne in a body that looks not too different from any of ours. And, and I, think, I think that that's profound, and I think that means a lot of things about who God is and a lot of things about who we are. And so this morning, that's what I want to do. I want to just flesh that out and, and dialogue about that. What does that mean? Like, really, what does that mean, and how should we live because of it? And so I want to start with kind of that first statement that, you know, there's nothing beyond Jesus that you need to know about God. That, that Jesus, he really is the complete picture of who God is. And that if you have something that's in addition to Jesus in your picture of God, then it turns out, I believe, that your picture of God is off. In John 14... Jesus is, he's got his last, he's got his crew together for the last time, right? John 14 through 17, it's the last supper, they're chilling. He's like pouring into his 12 for the last time. You know, he knows he's going to go die that night, you know? And so, and so he's pouring into them for the last time and they're having their kind of like discussion and he's, he's, he's really just blessing them and, 
In John 14, you know, there's, there's this discussion, and, and he's talking, and he's saying, like, guys, don't be troubled. You know, I'm going to God, but I'm going to go, and I'm going to open up a way for you guys to come to God, and this kind of stuff. And, and you know, so, so, so don't, don't be troubled that I leave. And, and Thomas says to him, and says, God, we don't know where we're going, so how can we know the way, right? And, and then there's the famous, like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Right? And Thomas is like, oh, okay, good, finally. You know, Jesus, he's always talking about the kingdom. He's always talking about all this stuff. He's finally talking about the Father, you know? And Thomas is clued in, like, okay, this is good. Because the, the way he knows the Father, he's saying that he's going to open up the way for us to know the Father like that. That's really cool. Because when Jesus shows up, right, nobody knew God as Father. He, he shows up and he starts calling God his dad and he starts living like God actually is his dad. And so the disciples hang with him for three years and they're like, this dude's crazy, but he's got the proof to back it up. And he starts talking like, and now I'm going to open up the way for you guys to know God as father. And so, and, so, and so Thomas is like, yes, this is really cool. How do we get it? And he says, well, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known the Father. From now, you do know him and you have seen him. And Philip's like, you're not making sense. God, Jesus, just show us the Father. Like, don't talk in riddles anymore. You know, Jesus talked in riddles all the time. Just just show us who the Father is. And Jesus' response is so profound. He says, have you been with me for so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And with that statement... Jesus anchors, anchors in a key point of his mission. Jesus came to reveal who God was. Before Jesus comes, no one knows God as Father. No, no, one, no one can look at the Old Testament and come to the conclusion that God is a loving Father. It, you, I mean, it, we, can, we can, with the benefit of hindsight, see that he is now because we know of Jesus. But b- before Jesus came, God's kind of a scary dude. And if you get on the wrong side, it's not looking good for you. And so Jesus comes, and he starts talking about a God that looks totally different. And he calls him Father, and then he turns around, and at the last supper, the last meal he has with his dudes, he says, guys, remember this. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If, if you want to know who the Father is, you look at me. If, if you want to know who, who God, the essence of God... Don't look beyond me. Don't look anywhere else. And, and I think that you and I, we tend to have a struggle. Because it's natural for us. We read the Bible, and we read all of the stories. We want to read the whole Bible, right? Because the whole Bible's inspired, you know? And even though the Old Testament is sometimes confusing, it's still the Word of God. So we read it. And there's all of these stories about God slaughtering nations and one person sins and so thousands of people get a plague and die and all of this stuff in the Old Testament. And if we're not careful, what happens is this. We let the New Testament give us a picture of Jesus and the Old Testament give us a picture of God. And then, and then we kind of like take the two and we sort of put them together into this weird thing where it's like, well, I know that, that, that God is like kind of the mean dad, and Jesus, he's like the cool son. He likes me, but I don't think the dad really likes me. But I'm in cool with his kid, so the dad kind of puts up with me because he knows that his kid likes me. <laughs> you know? Like, seriously, that's, that's what we think, right? And especially if you're parents and you know someone, one of your kid's friends you don't really like, but you put up with them, then it makes perfect sense. And, 
And, and I guess what I'm here to say is that that picture of God is, is entirely incorrect. And, and I'm going to flesh that out. So let me, let me hit another a passage that I think is a good one. A little bit later in, the, in the, um, that, that last supper, John 17, okay? Jesus is praying. It's called the, the high priestly prayer. Jesus prays this like awesome prayer for all of John 17. It's like his last prayer before he's going to the cross, right? And here's, here's what he prays. This is awesome. Um, John 17, verse 4 here, it says this. He's praying, and he's praying to God. He says, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished, past tense, done, the work that you gave me to do. Now, if you're me, you should find that an interesting verse. Because he has not died on the cross at this point. He's not resurrected at this point. He's not, he's not passed on the Holy Spirit. He's not, he's not like commissioned them to extend the kingdom. He's not done a lot of things that, are, that seem really important. And yet, he says, I have accomplished the work that you sent me to do. God, I did it. You sent me to do something and I did it. Jesus, what are you talking about? Like, I thought you came to die. And of course he did. I'm not saying he didn't. But in some, in some way, there's something that's really important that Jesus considers very central to his assignment. I'm going to skip over verse 5 because it kind of just steps aside for a little minute. And then in verse 6, he actually explains what it was that he was sent to do. I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. God, I did everything that you sent for me to do. I manifested your name to the people you gave me. What, what he's saying is this. To manifest something is to take something that's like potential and turn it into actual. And so he's saying, I came and I showed. I did show and tell of your name, your character to the people that you gave me here in the world. God, I accomplished what you sent me to do, and what that was, was revealing you as a father. And so it's interesting because, to me, it seems like Jesus understood that revealing the father was actually his primary assignment. And that, you know what, the cross is important, but the cross comes as a revelation of a father who would die for his kids. And so Jesus comes, and he reveals the Father. And actually over and over and over again through the New Testament, there's this picture of the fact that Jesus is a new picture of who God is. And we can't try and square, like add a little bit of the old picture. We need to look at the new picture only. Okay? Let me, let me tell you a few examples why. First of all, I don't know if you guys have ever thought this. I think this is interesting. John 1 says that Jesus was the Word made flesh. Right? So, so Jesus is the word of God. The word that's spoken by God, taken in a physical form, is Jesus. And Jesus himself says that, that we speak out of the overflow of our heart. So Jesus himself is the overflow of God's heart in a body. If you want to see God's heart, you look at Jesus. By his own words. I'm the word made flesh. We speak out of the overflow of our heart. I'm the overflow of God's heart. You want to know God's heart. Look at the sun. In Hebrews 1, it says this. Amazing. Hebrews 1, verse 1 here. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Old Testament. 
right? Letter written to the Hebrews. So what's he talking about there? Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He gave us, he gave us like the Torah, he gave us the prophets, he gave us the Psalms, he gave us the Proverbs, he gave us the Old Testament. Long ago, God spoke that way. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Long ago, God spoke to us through the prophets. And what he spoke to us through the prophets was good. But in these last days, he gave us Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. And it's important for you and I to realize that the only thing that actually has the capacity to reveal the fullness of God is humanity. Remember, God creates humanity, Genesis 1.26. Let us create them in our image and our likeness, and let us give them dominion over the earth. So he says, I want to create these guys to be my picture here on the earth. An image is something that calls a recollection. When you see an image of something, so think of a statue, right? The big statue maybe of Abraham Lincoln in, in, in the Lincoln Memorial or whatever. He's sitting on the thing. When you see that thing... Right? You don't think, oh, that was a big rock that was cut out of a mountain somewhere. You look at that thing and you go, that's Abraham Lincoln. And then you go, oh, well, I mean, it's not actually Abraham Lincoln. I mean, I guess it's a statue. But the primary recognition is one that the image points to the source. Right? So if we're created in the image of God, then our role is to be that to this world. So that this world could see us and say, oh, that's what God is like. Oh, that's not actually God. But that's exactly what God is like. And only humanity is created with that capacity. Right? I mean, the, the events of history, the prophecies of Israel, don't have the capacity to reveal God. Not in fullness. Only humanity does. They can give you a snippet. They can give you a, a little picture. But the fullness of God revealed has to come in humanity. That's the way he designed it. There's no other, there's no other method. And so in these last days, he's spoken by his son. Why? Because that's the only way he could give us a complete picture. That's the only way that God could really come into focus. You know, it's like before there were all these pictures. And, you know, you see like a picture or kind of a photograph or a portrait kind of thing. And it's like, you know, the person is probably in focus and the background is like way out of focus. Right? And so if you try and study a photograph like that and you figure out, you're, you're like, man, is that trees in the background? Is that grass, bushes? Like, I can't even tell. All I know is it's kind of like green and blurry. And you can kind of figure some things out, but you can't see it clearly. And, and Jesus is God coming from out of focus into focus. In John 1, the first John 1. You guys tracking with me? Yep. It's a little too deep? No? We're good? Okay. Come on. Come, Holy Spirit. 1 John 1, verse 5. So, John is writing and he's saying, like, this, this is Jesus. He came. He was manifest to us. We saw him. We talked with him. He was a physical person. I knew him. And he says, this is the message that we've heard from him and we proclaim to you. This is John's summary of what Jesus came to do. This is the message. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
This is the message that Jesus came to do, to define God and to reveal that God isn't mixing good and bad. That God's not playing both sides of the table. That God doesn't want good things for us sometimes and bad things for us other times. That God is simply good. He's light, and that light has no darkness. He's not, he's not playing one hand on God's side and one hand on the devil's side. No. Right? And, 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 and this is the conclusion that we have to be careful that we don't come to. It, like I said, if we, if we read the Old Testament incorrectly, because it's very easy for us to take one of those examples and say, well, if that's what God is, then the fact is, is that God is using the devil's means to get his ends. God is using death to get his ends. God is using sickness to get his ends. God is using poverty to get his ends. And a God that I, I can just see on your faces, if that's who God is, that shouldn't sit right with you. That should be uncomfortable. Why is it that God's toolbox gets bigger at the fall? Couldn't he do good things to get what he wants? Why does he have to do bad things to get what he wants? So God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. John 1.18. I, I want to hit this over and over and over in the New Testament because I just got to... I realize I may need to, like break down some old thinking. And so I just want to prove to you it's in the Bible. <laughs> first John 1, or no, John 1, 18, not first John. Uh, actually, let's start at verse 16. For from his fullness, Jesus's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That's so beautiful. Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You notice truth wasn't here until Jesus came? If truth isn't here until Jesus comes, why are you taking that as your picture of God? For no one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made him known. John writes... No one before Jesus came has ever seen God. No one, including Moses, who literally saw God. Right? No one has ever seen God. Jesus made him known. And so if you see something in God that's not in Jesus, then you haven't seen the truth. Because the truth didn't come until Jesus. That should blow your mind. Moses saw God, but he didn't see God. I'll tell you actually why in just a little bit. Matthew 17. Oh, man, this is so good. Transfiguration. This is an amazing event. So Jesus has got his crew, and he ditches most of them. He takes his, his inner circle, Peter and James and John, and they go up on the mountain, right? And, um, by the way, just a little interesting bit of symbolism I learned not too long ago. So, um, names in the Bible are often important and they mean something, right? And how many of you guys know what Peter means? Rock. That's right. That's good. Do you guys know what James means? James is a derivative of the word Jacob. Do you guys remember what Jacob means? Who knows what Jacob means in the Old Testament? It means he's, he grasps, he supplants, he replaces, right? 
you guys know what John means? Actually, it's actually a derivative of the word grace. So Jesus goes up on the mountain with his friends that are named, the rock is replaced by grace. The Ten Commandments are replaced by grace because he goes up on the mountain and the first time Moses goes up on the mountain, what does he get? The rock. Jesus goes up on the mountain to replace the rock with grace. Isn't that amazing? Jeez, I could... Oh, that's not even what I'm preaching on. That's just extra. My goodness. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, so... After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his, with his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Can you imagine that? That would be crazy. Also, interesting parallel, Moses glowed, covered it up with his clothes. Jesus glowed and his clothes glowed too. Why? Because grace can't be shut down by what's natural. Oh, it's so good. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Okay, so picture it, right? Inner three, they go up, they're with Jesus. All of a sudden, Jesus is like glowing. And they're like, dude, what is going on? This is crazy. And then Moses and Elijah show up. And, and Peter is thinking like, oh my gosh. This is crazy. I mean, like, I've been hearing stories about Moses and Elijah since I was, like, half a year old. I mean, we're talking, this is Bible stuff, man. Like, this is nuts. Right? And so, and so he's like, man, this is so cool. I mean, I knew Jesus was awesome, but I didn't realize Jesus was, like, on the level of the Bible. I mean, come on. Right? Because they're just following. I mean, he's a dude. They're figuring this out. They don't, they, they don't know that he's God in the flesh at this point. They just know he's the best thing that's ever happened to him. And, and they're not letting him go, whatever it takes, right? So, so they're up there, and these guys appear, and Peter's like, oh my gosh, like, this is like Bible stuff. Holy cow. Okay, um, how about this? I'll, I'll build three temples, or three little, not temples, three little, like, tents, and we can just kind of, like, hang out up here, okay? Because, like, whatever's happened here, I don't understand it, but I know it's good, okay? And I don't want it to end. So, so this, is, this is Peter's, Peter's like, assessment. And then, check this out. He was still speaking. Okay, so he got interrupted at this point. Pay attention when God interrupts you. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Interesting parallel. Again, with Moses, it was a dark cloud, scary cloud. This one is a bright cloud. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom... I am well pleased. Watch this. Listen to him. Peter, I know you're excited. I know that you think that you're in Bible times. That's really good. But I think you're missing the point. The point here is that Moses and Elijah were here for a time. You don't listen to them any longer. Now my son is here. You listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Of course they did. Because they have, a, they have a picture of God that's from the Old Testament. If God shows up, it's the scariest thing in the world. You're going to die. <laughs> Serious, right? So he shows up and starts talking. They fall on their face terrified. Okay? 
But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And in that, he redefines who who God is to them. This is my son. You listen to him. Ah, God. Rise. Have no fear. And from that point, they lifted up their eyes. They saw no one but Jesus only. And that's exactly what you and I are supposed to do. The law and, and, and the prophets, they're good, okay? Don't, don't, don't throw them out, okay? The, the Old Testament is in the Bible for a reason. But we need to understand that Jesus came because God was not clear in the Old Testament. Okay? He, is he in the Old Testament? Absolutely. But the Old Testament, okay, is meant to be a revelation of a few things. Firstly, it's meant to be a revelation primarily of you and I. We are what's in focus in the Old Testament. Paul says, through the law comes the knowledge of what? Sin. Not the knowledge of holiness. So through the Old Testament, when you read that, what you're reading is humanity. You're not reading God. Okay? Now, God is in the Old Testament, and many of you should probably know that that you can learn things in there. But what happens is it's like the New Testament and God is like concealed in symbolism in the Old Testament. It's hidden in there. And there's all of these things that you can learn and you can pull out, but you need to understand that it's kind of indirect a lot of times. That's why, for example, when Paul does things like reference the Old Testament... He, he talks about things like he was like, well, there was, there was a mountain, or he says, he says like, oh, I wish I could remember exactly the example right now. Is it Hagar and Sarah? I think it's Hagar and Sarah. He says that Abraham, he had Hagar and he had Sarah. And these two women are two covenants. Hagar is a covenant of law and of death and self-effort. And Sarah is a covenant of grace. So when he's, when he's reasoning from the Old Testament... He's, he's not like quoting and you say, okay, and so God said, and so you can see that God is like this. No, he's looking at the Old Testament and he's reading to see the truth that's been buried in the symbolism of the Old Testament. And you know what? It's everywhere and all throughout it. You, you'd be shocked once your eyes open to this thing, which you can see there. But there's a reason in, in second, let me just turn there. Second Corinthians 3. Now watch this. This is really good. 2 Corinthians 3, um, blah, 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 blah. Verse 12. Let's start with that. How are we doing for time? Okay. This is good. This is good. All right. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. Okay, so... This is referring to Moses. He goes up on the mountain. He shines with the glory of God. And then he comes down and he covers it up. Okay? He covers it with a veil. Right? And it's interesting. I used to read this thing and think that he covered it with a veil because people freaked out because he was glowing. Actually, what it says is they would not um, gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. In other words, what he was really covering up was the fact that he didn't keep glowing. He, he, like he went up there glowing and he came down and, and turned it off. And he covered it up because he didn't want them to see that under the old covenant, the glory can't rest permanently. 
You can encounter it, and it's like you've got it for a little bit, and then it fades and it's gone. And so he covers that up. It says, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, he's talking about the Jews, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. What he's saying is this. They are reading the Old Testament and trying to find God there. And if that's what you do, you actually put a veil over your heart that prevents you from seeing who God is. And only when you turn to Jesus and let Jesus be the picture of who God is, is that veil removed from your heart. So, so when you read this thing, if, 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 you're, if you're not finding Jesus in the Old Testament and letting the Old Testament point to Jesus and Jesus point to God, if you do anything other than that, you actually veil your own heart and you can't see the truth. And only when you turn to Jesus is that removed. And so the Old Testament is this thing that we have to come to understand carefully. Now here's the good news about that. The really good news is that because Jesus came, we have a very clear picture of who God is. We don't have to settle for like trying to reason through all of the, the mysteries and, and stuff of the Old Testament. No, Jesus came and he made it very, very clear and very, very simple. And here's the bottom line. God is really, really good. He's really good. Like, he's the kind of God that you're like, I can't believe that God is actually this good. This seems too good to be true. Right? I mean, he's the kind of God who fights for every underdog. He's the kind of God who, who, like, partners with anyone who needs help. He's the kind of God that can't stop giving even when it costs him his own life. And he doesn't want to. He wants to, every single time he gets the opportunity, give, give, bless, bless, pour, pour, reveal, reveal. He can't turn it off. He, he would do these things where he'd be like, oh man, I mean, I'm still a human being. I got to go up. I got to rest. I got to recharge. Oh gosh, there's a crowd that need healing. Okay, never mind. And he goes. He can't, he, he can't stop it. Right? And, and, and the, the, the crux, the anchor point that we need to lock in, right, is that he came knowing he was going to die. He, he, he didn't show up and, well, maybe I can somehow figure out some way to save the world without the cross. He knew the cross was plan A. I think I said this Friday night. He was slain before the foundation of the world. So the, so the original plan, the original plan was, I'm going to come to die so that they can know who they are. That's the plan. I'm going to come to die. I'm going to come to live in such a way that they see who the Father is. And then I'm going to die in such a way that they can enter into who I am. That was, that was the original plan from day one. And that's the heart of God. Like I said, he's a God, a father, who loves his kids to the point where he'll die for them without a second thought. Where he marches, where he says, Judas, you go betray me because I'm ready to do this thing. It's amazing. That's astounding. That's the heart of the father. It's purely, simply good. And our, our, and our barometer Our thermometer for the will of God becomes Jesus' own barometer that he gives in his own life, John 10.10, which is what the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you may have what? Life and life abundantly. 
And so if Jesus becomes our picture of God, then, then we can know that God is really good. And he's really safe. And he really wants the best for us. And yes, life is not always easy, but he walks us through those roads. And we can always trust him. And he's never going to do that thing that we think about sometimes if we add some of the judgment and some of the stuff from the Old Testament into our picture with God, where we're like, God's going to step on my toes to build my character somehow. He's going he's gonna to give me something that's really rough because he knows that I need to learn patience and perseverance and it's going to be blah. That's, that's, that's not his heart. That's not his heart at all. Now, if something happens in life where you need to learn patience or perseverance, he's totally there to help. He wants to. But he's not sending bad stuff into your life to grow you. There's plenty of bad stuff that comes along without his help, right? He's here to redeem stuff. And in fact, he sends us to the bad stuff to redeem it. You guys with me? Okay. Here's, here's, here's I guess, what I want to just say in summary as I transition to talking about Jesus as the revelation of who we are. Let's not make it more complicated than the angels made it when they showed up and they announced Jesus to the shepherds, right? What did they say? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, and what? Good will to men. They had been waiting for all eternity to make that announcement. That was the first time they could say, good will is released to men now. Because before, it got locked down, shut down by this thing called the law. How many of you guys know in, in Hebrews 8? Gino, I'm going to try and keep this to just an hour. <laughs> okay, Hebrews 8, check this out. He, okay, first of all, let me say this. Spend some time reading Hebrews 8, because Hebrews 8 tells you what the new covenant is. And in, in my experience, most Christians know 10 times as much about the old covenant than they do about the new. They know way more about the covenant that no longer applies to them than the one that they're living in right now. So spend some time in there. Figure out that new covenant, because that's what you're under now. It's really good. Hebrews 8 says this, verse 7. Talking about the two covenants, it says this. For if that first covenant, if the law had been faultless... There would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault with, it says here, them, which refers to actually the promises of the law. When he says, so God actually finds fault with the law. Not my words. Hebrews writer's words. God finds fault with the law when he says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers. Not like the law. On the day when I came out, when, they, uh, when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For, okay, this is why the law has a problem right here. For, they did not continue in my covenant and show I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The covenant of the law basically looks like this. You do the right thing, I'll bless you. You do the wrong thing, I'll curse you. God himself says... I don't like that bargain because you guys aren't good at keeping it and when you blow it, I have to curse you and I don't like that. 
So when we read back through the Old Testament and we see God doing all of these terrible things, and we're like, oh, how can I worship a God like that? And he's like, man, I hate this. Will you stop blowing it? I don't want to curse you. I don't want to kill you. I don't want these terrible things to happen. But you know what? I'm locked in this covenant just as much as you are. And so just like when you blow it, there's consequences. When you blow it, I have consequences too. And I don't like those consequences. And that's why it's important that Jesus came and died not only as man, but as God. Because when he dies as God, he lets God out of that covenant too. And now God is free to relate to us based on his terms, which are the terms of grace and of his son. And no longer is he bound to do bad things to us when we do bad things. He can reveal the purity of his heart, which is to bless and love his kids uncomplicatedly. It's good. So good. Okay, so Jesus reveals... Oh, I've got to take a drink here. Jesus reveals who God is, right? But the amazing thing is Jesus was God, 100% God and 100% man. He was everything that God was. But you know what? He was everything that you and I are. He was, I mean, he was a dude. Okay? Like, like I know this is one of those things. We, 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 we tend to kind of like think that somehow Jesus was like Superman. And like, sure, technically he was sort of like a human, but he like wasn't. But no, he actually was. I mean, like, he really was. And like, and like think about it. I mean, like, so what's your name? Terry. Terry, can you stand up right now? So if I, Jesus saying, I'm God, is the equivalent of saying, like, hey, did you guys know this is God right here? Did you know that? Like, you laugh because it's preposterous. But that's, that's actually what happened. No, no, everything that God is is right here. He's, he's it. Everything. The whole universe can't fit him, but you know what? There he is. Isn't that crazy? That should mess with your head. That, 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 should, that should make you not be able to sleep at night. Literally. <laughs> Thanks, Terry. You're good, man. Jesus was a real dude. And what that means is this. When he comes and he lives, and the way that he lives reveals what humanity was supposed to be. Right? So he, he reveals who God is, but the reality is, is he was the only one who was born not under the curse. He was the only one who lived as that, like, Genesis 126 that we talked about. The original plan for humanity was him. He was the one who who lived it. And that's why it's so important that those three years of his ministry are recorded. Because in that, we see a picture of what we are supposed to be. We see a picture that, that Jesus reveals the original plan for humanity. And the conclusion that you have to come to, if that's true, is that the original plan for humanity was to reveal who God is because, because of exactly what I just told you. So, so Jesus illustrates to us, reveals to us the reality that you and I are meant to be exactly what he was. You and I are, are meant to be able to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That, that should also mess with your head. <laughs> that, because this, now all of a sudden, this thing is no longer about living a good life. This thing is no longer about doing the right thing. Okay, I want you to live a good life. I want you to do the right thing. But Jesus died for a lot more than us to do the right thing. You know, like, <laughs> Jesus died for a whole lot more than for us to live a, a good life. He died so that we could reveal the Father. 
And, and when Jesus comes, the way that he addresses the human condition reveals that he's after much more than our poor behavior. Okay? There, how many of you guys know that there's a difference between sins and sin? Sins refers to the bad stuff that we do. It refers to, oh, geez, I flipped off the taxi cab driver again. That was a bad, oh, dang, I kicked the dog again. Oh, man, I yelled at my wife again, whatever. Those are sins, acts of sin. Sin itself is, is something that, that has taken up residence in humanity. It's an actual thing. And it's not tied to actions. And out of sin that lives in humanity, we bring forth sins. Okay? Jesus says this way. If you're a good tree, you're going to bear good fruit. If you're a bad tree, you're going to bear bad fruit. So in other words, if you have the fruit of sin on your life, which everyone who he's speaking to does at this point, no one is saved, right? The conclusion that they are meant to come to is, wow, there must be something wrong with my tree. There must be something wrong with me. And so sin living in humanity produces sins through humanity. And you and I, we tend to get really, as Westerners, we zoom in on sins. We zoom in on our bad behavior. Because, I don't know why, because we feel guilty about it, because whatever, because, because we have this kind of judicial understanding of the Bible. And, and absolutely, sins are an issue and need to be dealt with. There's a, there's a price that gets paid for sins, for guilt to be cleared. Okay? And that's important. But it's important for us to realize as well that the price to be paid for sins to be cleared is not necessarily have to be the blood of Jesus. They already had a whole system that cleared sins. They went to the temple, they offered like sin offerings and guilt offerings and all of this stuff, and when they did that, the priest would forgive them and their sins were, were forgiven. It was done. It was good. And so before Jesus even came, the sins problem had a solution. And so when the Son of God comes and dies... We need to realize that what he's doing is bigger than replacing all of the animals that had to die with one son of God that dies. Right? Otherwise, Jesus saves the animals. Right? And, and that's cool. I'm glad he saves the animals. God loves animals. But, but, but I think it's bigger than that. Right? And so, and so we need to come to understand, okay, so maybe, maybe what Jesus is doing is maybe he's, he's not looking at the bad fruit on the tree. Maybe he's looking at the tree itself. Maybe, maybe he's coming not, not to just deal with our bad behavior, although he does, but to actually change the essence of who we are. To change the fact that sin was dwelling within humanity. It was an active force within our nature, and it twisted everything so that it didn't matter what we did, sin would come out somehow. Because it lived in us. And so it's like this. You're like, you know, before you're saved... You kind of have some knowledge of what's right and wrong because everybody has like a conscience, you know, and we grow up in American society where we know like you don't murder people. That's a bad thing to do. And maybe you're confused about some other things, but you're, you're living your life and you're like, oh man, okay, well, I just, I steal things all the time. And so that's not good. I shouldn't steal things. So you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to pay attention. Every time I have the opportunity to steal something, I'm not going to do it. So you're like, stealing is like right over there. And you're like, I'm not going to steal. 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 And then boom, now I'm, where'd lust come from? 
Now, now I'm lusting all the time. And you're like, okay, okay, hang on, hang on, reset. I'm not going to steal, and I'm not going to lust. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like walk. Okay, I'm not stealing, I'm not lusting, I'm not stealing, I'm not lusting. Oh my gosh, I'm coveting. Where did coveting come from? And all of this while, we're trying to avoid these behaviors, and it's in us, so it's coming out through us. There's nothing we can do to stop it. You can change the flavor if you want, but, but, but it doesn't make a difference. Sin has corrupted our being, and so our being is broken, and it comes out as obvious. If you're broken, what you do will be broken. And so when Jesus comes and Jesus dies, okay, we need to, we need to realize that his death and his resurrection addresses the identity issue. It addresses the essence of us issue. It addresses the fact that we're a bad tree and makes us a good tree. That's what the word righteousness means in the Bible. You ever notice how Paul is like obsessed with that word? He's like, righteousness by faith, righteousness by faith, righteousness by faith, righteousness by faith. What does he mean when he's saying that? He's saying over and over and over again, if you actually believe, if you stop trying to fix yourself and you just believe that Jesus has fixed you, then you'll live like you're fixed. That's what he's saying over and over and over again. And, and, and so Jesus comes, he dies. And he creates the way for you and I to become a new creation. Okay? In, 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 in the beginning, right? And God said, you know, let there be light. And God said, part the seas from the water, or part the seas. And God said, land and seas separate. And God said, plants come forth. And God said, yada, yada, yada. And every time, at the end, it says, and God looked at it and it was good. God looked at it, and it was good. God looked at it, and it was good. God looked at it, and it was very good. But you know what? God never looked at it and said it was finished until the cross. On the cross, Jesus says, it's done. This is the last act of creation right here. You and I, a new one, a new breed. And Paul is gripped by this thing. He says, I, anyone in Christ, is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Not the old is on its way out. The new is on its way in. You're not being renewed. You're new. Your thinking may be being renewed. Your essence is new. Who you are is exactly what Adam and Eve were in the garden. Except it gets one better because they didn't have God living in them and you have God living in you. And so we have everything restored to us that was taken. Remember, the Son of God came to seek and save what was lost. The first thing that was lost, who we are. The first thing was lost exactly was our identity. How many of you guys know that the original temptation that the serpent gave Eve, the original deception was a deception based on our identity? Let us create them in the image and likeness of God. Oh, that tree won't kill you. You eat that thing, you'll be like God. She already was like God. She didn't need the tree to become like God. But what happens is she buys the lie of the enemy, and then she acts on it, and in acting out the lie of the enemy, it becomes the truth in her life. Now she's no longer like God. And that's the first thing that was lost. And Jesus comes back and he says, I'm ready, I'm here to seek and to save what was lost, to put you back to what you were always meant to be. And what that means is that you and I don't have sin living in us anymore. 
What that means is that you and I don't have a struggle with one part of ourself and the other part of ourself. Okay? We don't have this war where it's like, man, I've got to overcome my, my bad this and my, my sinful that. And my... No, 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 no. Paul said, okay, this is important. I know, I may, I may have just like messed you guys' heads up when I said that. This, this is important, okay? For the death he died to sin, the death Jesus died to sin, Romans 6.10 here. The death he died to sin, he died once for all. But the life that he lives, the life Jesus lives, he lives to God. So also, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's the thing. We have been so united with Jesus. We have been so put in him. There's no part of us that's not in him, and there's no part of him that's not in us. And so if you say, I have a battle with my sin nature, then you're saying that so does Jesus. Jesus does not have a sin nature, guys. And you have been made everything that he is. And so is there a battle where at times we want to do the wrong thing? Yes. But you know what? That's not a battle within you. You have been made new. It's a battle between the new you and the old world. It's a battle between the new you and the voices coming from the outside of your head, not the inside of your head. Otherwise, it's not fair to say, I will give them a new mind and a new heart. You don't have that heart of stone anymore. You don't, you don't have that broken, twisted, selfish All of those things that was sin, all of that, none of that is you anymore. And what happens is the enemy keeps sending the same thoughts to us that he sent to us before we were saved. And then he turns around and he says, see, you haven't changed at all. See, you've got nothing. And we let him beat us up. Guys, it's like this. When you change houses, right? When you move out of a house, someone else moves into a new house. Do you keep getting mail for the old guy? You do. You keep getting mail for the dude who lived in the house before you. And you know what? That mail comes for like years. It's ridiculous. I don't know what the problem is with the postal system. They just can't get their act together. I mean, we've been living in my house for like six years. We still get stuff all the time for the old people. And like two and three back. Okay, end of brand. Um, Don't let the mail coming to you define who you are to yourself. Okay? You get mail for the old client. Don't open it up and be like, oh my gosh, I thought I was putty, but I'm not. My name is Clarence. Who knew? That's what we do. That's what we do. And he gave you this book so that you wouldn't have to question who you are. He gave you this book so that your experiences wouldn't form the picture of God or the picture of you. Because that's why Jesus came, to give us a picture of God and a picture of us. And everything that he has, everything that he is, is in us. Colossians 2 says this. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
If that didn't, if, if, if my half an hour convincing you that Jesus revealed God didn't do it, that verse should do it right there. In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There is no part of God left out with Jesus. All of it's in there. And you have been filled in him. In Jesus, every part of God lives in a human being, and every part of Jesus is in you. There's no part left out. And that means that God is no longer on the outside. That means when we pray, God is no longer out there somewhere. And, 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 and that means that there are so many things that we need to rethink about God all over again. Because God is not, not primarily on the outside. He's primarily on the inside. I mean, this is big. We don't realize God said he had a house in the Old Testament. He never said he had a home till he moved in you. So what he says, my father and I will come and make our home with him. God primarily lives in here. And so when we say things like, God is omnipotent, God is all-powerful, and we pray, God, you're out there somewhere, you're omnipotent, you're all-powerful, come help. When Jesus has already said, all things are possible to him who believes. What if that's what omnipotence is? God's in you already. All things are possible. Stop looking for him out there somewhere. Start finding him in here. Start finding him in here. And when you begin to find him in here, you find that you're able to live from the inside out. See, so many of us, we get shaped by our circumstances. We get shaped by the things that happen in our life. And the way the enemy works is he always arranges things on the outside of us to control the things on the inside of us. You guys all know exactly what I'm talking about. He makes the stuff on the outside terrible and horrible, and the guy, you're driving in church, and the guy cuts you off on the way in, and you get angry at him for the whole church service. <laughs> Seriously, you guys know it. You are so peeved that you can't let it go for like two or three days. And the dude probably didn't even see you. He probably didn't even do it on purpose. But what's happening is the enemy is organizing the stuff on the outside to control what's happening on the inside. And God works the other way around. He moves on the inside first so that we can release what's happening inside, outside, through us. Jesus was sleeping in peace in the storm. And the disciples wake him up. And all he does is he just says, peace, I already have it in here. Let me just release it out here. And so when we begin to get in touch with the fact that God is in us, God is in us, and God is well able to meet all of your needs. God is well able to meet any need of rejection. God is well able to meet any need of, of tension, any need of finances, any need of relationship, any need of anything. And we need to stop expecting other people to meet the needs that God inside wants us to meet with him. And when I'm in that place, now all of a sudden, you can't ruin my life anymore. Now all of a sudden, it's like, you know what? I'm persecuted, but I'm not afflicted. I'm crushed down, but I'm not destroyed. Exactly what Paul says. Because why? The love of God in here is so real to me that whatever you do on the outside can't change the internal reality. I'm walking in the love of God all the time. So Jesus says, abide in me. Stay in the place where the love, the reality of God living in your consciousness is the biggest thing in here all of the time. 
And when you walk that way, whatever situation you come into no longer dictates your picture of God, but it's your opportunity to reveal God. Now all of a sudden, the bad stuff that happens in my life doesn't ruin my life because it's like, oh, well, God doesn't care about me, otherwise he wouldn't let that happen. Instead, it's like, this is my assignment. Let's go. Boom, there's God. Turn around. God lives in you because of Jesus. God made you new because of Jesus. Fully, completely, holy. You're back in the garden. You're back in the garden with him. And just like the fruit went off the tree, Jesus put it right back on the tree. The sin issue has been dealt with. Don't dig it back up again. Don't, don't spend time thinking about the corpse on the ground behind you. Don't spend time analyzing the corpse on the ground behind you. How much surgery you want to do there? It's not going to help. Because you're new. And the one thing Paul says, he says, this is the one thing I'm pressing towards. The one thing that I would forget what lies behind and press forward to what lies ahead. The upward call of Christ Jesus so that I may be true to what I've attained. The one thing, the one thing that gripped Paul's heart, I've been made totally new. There's no part of me that's out of place. There's no part of me that's broken. There's no part of me that's not what was originally created to be. There's no part of me that's not the pinnacle of creation. Same for you. And Paul says, the only thing I'm doing is I'm forgetting all of anything that holds me back from that. I'm forgetting anything, any thought from the unrenewed mind in here that doesn't line up with that because I need to stay true to what God has given me. I need to stay true to the fact that he's made me new. I need to stay true to the fact that he says, I live in you now. I'm the hope of glory. Now go show me to the world. Jesus. He's God and man. And what happens in Jesus is all of God descends into man so that in Jesus, all of man can ascend into God. Let me pray. Where's the team you guys can come on home? Oh, God. Oh, it's good. It's good, God. Thank you. Thank you for the gospel, God. Thank you that this gospel is such good news that it blows our socks off. God, thank you that we have nothing to do but rejoice and be thankful in you. Thank you that it's finished. God, thank you that, that it includes us. We're finished, God. We're new. Thank you for that. Thank you for your simple, pure goodness. Thank you that you've made all things new. In Jesus' name, amen.